Welcome to the Matterhorn Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here, we have conversations about cultural studies, the arts, and writing. If you want to sign up to my Substack newsletter for free, just click on the link in this homepage. Okay, so this is another short take from the Matterhorn. And today, I would like to talk to you guys about Silda Morales' Babel from 2001, which is currently showing at the Tate in London um, for free. So if you're in London, you can just wander in, which is exactly what I did. I was in London for a couple of days after visiting my in-laws just outside the city, and um, I had planned to go to this David Bowie show just really close by at South Bank. Uh, but I missed my my ticket time slot and actually it was it was closing. It was too late because it was such a gorgeous spring day out that um, my friend and I who had a late lunch, we just sat outside with some rosé and had a lovely time. So uh, I mean, I love David Bowie. I've seen some of his exhibits before and I, you know, I hope to get back to this one. Let's see. But this was also a great quick surprise. I didn't have that much time to spend at the Tate because I had to uh, grab a train. But um, I wandered into this work by the Brazilian artist, as I said, Silda Morales, who was born in 1948. He's from Rio de Janeiro. And you may have seen before his Meshes of Freedom work, which was also shown at the Tate. It's about communication and freedom using mesh, allowing visitors to add to the display. Um, he's a conceptual artist, and he's he's also worked with things like Coke bottles and banknotes. Um, so this Babel, maybe obviously, maybe not obviously, it alludes to the Tower of Babel, um, from you know the biblical story and this tower that was built toward heaven um angered god for its hubris and it's in the story god uh gives humans all different languages as a kind of a curse so that it creates all the problems of conflict and uh miscommunication so he's playing with that idea in the sculpture, um, and maybe in the modern context, also looking at the tensions between holding on to um, our local languages and adopting new ones, as well as English being used um, all over the world and, of course, on the internet. So I'll come back to that idea a little bit later on. But you know, this was this was made in two thousand one, so very early internet days, really uh, pre smartphone days. It's made of a bunch of radios that Morales got from New York's uh, Canal Street. He got them all there. Uh, And they're old radios um, all the way to very, well, at that time, very modern ones from the 90s. So you can see all the different kind of dials and screens. They're made of wood or plastic or metal or combination um, and if you if you start to look closely at the pieces, there are kind of these interesting, um, really antiques to show where our sound has come from. Interestingly, this this tower, which as you enter the room, it's the only it's the only object in the room. It's right in the middle, and it it's a, it's a darker room. So the lights that come from the radios, which are switched on, uh, also kind of make a make a dance around the room, I would say, and make these kind of patterns 
on the sculpture itself. Now he places the radios from the larger size to small at the top. And what it does is it exaggerates the size of the tower's height as if to make it into the distance. I was really surprised when I saw on the website afterwards that the sculpture is about eight meters tall. I mean, it felt like at least 12 meters, I would say, um, when you're in the room, maybe partly also because of the darkness or the size of the room itself, I'm not sure, but it's kind of the opposite effect of Michelangelo's David where the top um, of his sculpture is disproportionately large, which makes it feel closer to us. So instead here, it's as if this tower is going off into the distance toward heaven if we look at the, the original story of Babel. So all the radios are switched on, um, all to different channels, and there's a kind of a dissonance that... that enters your your ear it's a little bit uncomfortable um at the same time when i was in the room i felt like i could pick out different songs playing there was definitely a kind of beat that you almost felt like you could you could dance to but i took a short recording and when i play it back i mean it just sounds like fuzz you know maybe it's the microphone on my phone but it doesn't really sound like anything at all. And when I was looking up more information about it, I couldn't find that there was actually any sort of um, song or message that uh, the artist wanted us to hear. So it seems like that's kind of an accident. It's something, it's the way that your ears hear the sound each time a, a person enters the room, it's, it's, different, it's different sound, so it's not playing on a loop. It's actually all these different um, combinations. And so, you know, what I experienced, you know, even if you tried to go tomorrow, you're just not going to hear the same thing. So I could try to describe it to you and it, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really matter in that sense. Um, the, the tower almost seems alive, I think because of the lights and of course the sound coming from it as if it's trying to reach out to you like an alien or something um, that just doesn't have the right language to do it. And so the artist calls it the tower of incomprehension which is about this kind of commu competing communication. There's this information overload and there's a failure of communication. There's, there's all these different uh, messages. You know, I don't know what language all the radios are tuned to, um, but even if there were languages that I know, there's no way that I could really make out any information from them. And even the songs that I thought I recognized, you know, I wasn't quite sure. And as soon as I was almost able to recognize them, they were just kind of gone. They disappeared into this um, abyss of sound, if you will. So this idea of competing communication was, of course, relevant in 2001, as we had more and more media available to us in the form of cable and the internet and all these different areas. But of course, it's even more relevant now um, with all of the online media. And in some other ways, it's it's kind of like a old-fashioned boombox battle gone wrong. I mean, from the 80s or 90s. Um, and, you know, interestingly, coincidentally, just after the show while I was walking by the Thames, uh, there was uh, maybe a 20-year-old, something like that. He was on a... Uh, he was on a tiny trick bike, you know, those tiny little trick bikes, and he was kind of weaving through the crowds, like very carefully, not bothering anybody, and he had a huge boombox um, attached to the bike, and it was playing 70s music, um, and you could see everyone was just kind of smiling. It was like a really, it was like a really lovely thing that he was sharing this this joy through the sound of his boombox, but 
the, the only competition with it was the sound of people's voices. It wasn't another um, song that was creating any dissonance or anything. So it was really in harmony with the space. So uh, I've, I've been talking about Paul Auster the last few weeks, and I will for um, another two weeks in the newsletter. And interestingly, in one of his most famous works, uh, New York Trilogy, and specifically City of Glass, he does make use of the Tower of Babel quite a bit. Um, he kind of plays with the concept, and he, um, he plays with this new idea from a fictional character who's kind of connected to Milton and Henry David Thoreau. I won't go into the details of that here, but he makes it into a kind of puzzle, making a new tower with a room for each person, forgetting all that they know, and then emerging, emerging speaking God's language, um, whatever that language you know, might be so that they're all in, they're all in sync with each other. So it's really the opposite of the sculpture that we see here. I'll just read you a very short passage um, from page 92 in my book, which is the one um, I link in, in my post from Oster. So it says, a language that will at last say what we have to say, for our words no longer correspond to the world. When things were whole, we felt confident that our words could express them. But little by little, these things have broken apart, shattered, collapsed into chaos. And yet our words have remained the same. So it's kind of, it's about the evolution of language, which of course, you know, language is, is always evolving. Um, but at the same time, it seems to be somebody who's kind of looking at the past as something better or when, oh, when we all spoke the same language, which could be interpreted as um, not, um, not allowing one to cross borders, either themselves or to allow others to enter the space with a new language. So it can, can be seen in different ways. It can be seen as, a, as an optimistic look at humanity or a kind of shutting off um, and the, the different characters in that, in that fiction kind of play with that idea as well, I would say. Um, and then in the latest work of fiction that I've been working on, which takes place in Vienna, I construct a scene in front of Bruegel's Tower of Babel, um, which the larger of the two works that um, have survived is housed in Vienna at the Kunsthistorisch Museum. Um, and the protagonist in my book is an interpreter. So this idea of a common language and translation of misunderstandings is explored through my book as well. So, I mean, how might we think of the Tower of Babel now? And maybe, uh, you know, why is, why is the Tate showing this work now is another thing to think about. You know, each time it's, it's reconstructed, it's done slightly different, differently, has to be put back together. It's not just something that is um, sort of wrapped in bubble and put on a truck and taken to the next city. It has to be made new. So they must have had a real purpose in, in showing it. And there's, there is this kind of tension of, you know, holding on to languages or allowing English to take over or other dominant languages like Putonghua in China, for example. Um, and so, you know, of course, there are many positive things about speaking multiple languages and to holding on to languages that maybe are not spoken by as many people, such as cultural identity, um, traditions, uh, you know, the, the power relationships that languages have um, between peoples and cultures. Um, there's also something kind of, you know, there's something fun about language, I feel 
like a different person when I'm speaking in French, for example, um, or Italian. And I think that, you know, people who speak different languages often have this association, sometimes by the experiences they've had in those languages, and sometimes just by the way the language sounds itself. Sometimes they sound more playful and more serious, or they're connected to um, different parts of their lives. So, you know, you can go in a lot of different um, directions with that. You know, language is also studied by neuroscientists, learning second languages and third languages and fourth languages as a way to um, cre keep the brain malleable. And it really, it helps us. Some have even linked it to um, helping to fight off dementia and different kinds of problems in the brain as well. But you could also ask, is it more practical to have a common language? Would it bring us more together? Um, you know, especially if we think of the origins of this story. As much as I love learning languages, the changes in the knowledge of English worldwide have had a great benefit to me living in different countries these past 15 years. I mean, I've seen a huge difference um, from, well, 2003, even when I lived in, in Paris, to um, now. And the amount of people who speak English just allows um, people to connect differently. You know, and fortunately or unfortunately, when you have a group of people who get together, um, often English is that common language. And, you know, it really it gives you it does give you some power if you have command of the language for sure. Um, you know, and and that is that is something that is complicated. But, you know, when we look at the language of the Internet, again, we know that most of it is in English. We know that a lot of, you know, international, um, international, uh, whether it's business or governments work in English as well because it's a more common language. Um, and even in Germany, they're considering adding English as a second official language. Um, here in Basel, I'm trying to learn German, but honestly, it's really hard um, because what I hear is English. Even kids coming out of local schools are speaking English with each other as soon as they get out of the school. Occasionally, I hear Swiss German, um, which isn't really what you learn in language schools, and often just mixed with everyone's um, home language, which is, is really a beautiful thing, but practically, it's quite difficult to learn German here for that reason. And I'm not trying to make excuses, but I am wondering if we're heading this way. Um, and interestingly, the Swiss have resisted a common language for centuries. The, the language is that of the Canton, which is like a, a state um, in the United States, but it's much smaller. So this, um, this city actually of Basel is actually a Canton. Um, and they choose what their official language is. Some of the laws are separate from the rest of the country. So you see, it's, it's a very different um, sort of experience. But the Swiss, of course, have also um, had a very peaceful existence for many years. So is this, is this connected to keeping um, their local language, or, or is it something else? Or is it because they are all required to learn several languages in school? Um, so, you know, and for me, it doesn't have to be English. I, I'd be really happy if it were French, for example, or something else that I would have spent a lot more time learning along the way. But, um, you know, this is just the reality that we're in right now. I mean, what do you think? I'd love to know. Um, 
what you think about this language dilemma. And one place we can talk about it is the new Substack Notes feature. Um, If you haven't joined it, you can check out my short post today with links that explain it, and it walks you through the process as well as connects you to some of the notes that I've already posted and the conversations that we've had on there. So thanks so much for listening to today's short take on the Matterhorn. You can check out the episode page for some links from today, as well as a link to my Substack page where you can get all my updates and join our community. 